open to Luke chapter 7. Uh, we're going to talk a little today about unbelief, a sad subject for sure, uh, unbelief. And last week, uh, we talked about doubt, if you remember. We looked at verses 18 through 23 and John the Baptist and talked about a believer's doubts. Uh, but this week, we're going to look at people who rejected Jesus. So this is, this is different. It's not doubt now, it's unbelief. And we're going to see uh, Jesus' explanation as to what was really going on in their heart. What is at the heart of unbelief? That's the question that we're asking. And uh, why is it so serious? Why is it such a problem? Because, you know, we talk a lot about faith here. Uh, if you come to Cornerstone and you ask, uh, what does that church want me to do? First, believe. That's what we want, believe. That, believe that God's as good as he says he is. And uh, we're going to be talking about that a lot over the years. And uh, specifically, as we look at Luke chapter 7 and 8, because uh, these chapters talk a lot about a person's response to Jesus, really. How does God want us to respond to Jesus? It's like Luke says in the opening chapters, chapters 1 through 6, this is who Jesus is. And he gives kind of this big idea of what Jesus came to do, to provide salvation. And he proves that he's able, and he's able to do it not just for Jews, but for the whole world. It's awesome. And now he's drawing some stories together uh, to help us get a picture of exactly how we should respond. And the key word that keeps coming up is faith. That's the response God wants. Faith, faith, faith. Chapter 7, verse 9, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. There was a lot of law in Israel, a lot of doing, a lot of religion. But Jesus is like, I'm not finding what I want, which is faith. This is what you need. Faith, like this Gentile, that's what's missing. Chapter 7, verse 50, and he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. And she's this sinful woman. That's who this whole story is about, this sinful woman who's sitting in this really religious person's house, actually, and Jesus is making a comparison between the two. And he's like, she is the one who is forgiven. The sinful woman is the one who's forgiven, not the religious person. And how? Again, faith. Your faith has saved you. Chapter 8, verse 22, where is your faith? And he's talking to his disciples there in the storm, and they're scared, and it feels justified. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. Faith. This is how you start the Christian life. This is how you live the Christian life out. Chapter 8, verse 48. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And chapter 8, verse 50. Do not fear, only believe. And so it's not super complicated, really, when we think about Christianity, the gospel, and the message of Luke. It's like, here is what God is doing. It's something huge because he's coming in the person of Jesus and he's presenting this great big plan for how he's going to rescue the world. And what are you supposed to do now? How does he want you to respond? He wants you to believe. He wants faith, faith in Jesus, faith in his promises. He wants you to trust him. Being a good person, doing all this religious stuff is not enough. Faith first, which we know as Christians, obviously. This is not new. <laughs> we know about faith. And at uh, CBC, at Cornerstone, we know it's so important that we've even got it over on our wall there. Faith alone, grace alone. And that's at the core of who we are. It's not, we're not preaching a message first about you and what you do. If you come here, it's not... Believe in yourself, or let me tell you how you can be a little better. It's about Jesus and what he's done. It's believe in him. That's the whole message of the Bible. That's chapter 7 and 8. Believe, believe, believe. We put a major emphasis on believing. But the thing is, obviously, a lot of people don't. They don't believe. Instead, they look at Jesus. They hear this message that's preached, and the opposite. They don't submit. They don't accept. They reject. There's a lot of unbelief out there. 
a lot. And so you, you kind of have to think about that if you're a Christian and you, you stress faith in Christ like we do. Because what about unbelief? I mean, most people don't think of unbelief as a problem. Why is unbelief a problem? If Luke is going to do all this work to help us understand the importance of faith, we need, to help, we need him to help us understand what is going on with unbelief because there's so much of it. So why is it serious? And what's going on when people don't believe and, and when they reject Jesus? Because they do. And it can be confusing. I think one of the hardest things about believing is all the unbelieving. It creates questions sometimes. You go out there and you share the gospel and it seems so good and it seems so obvious to you and you think, if only people hear it, if only they hear it, then they're going to respond the way that I did. And then they don't. And when they don't, it's like, what is going on? Why, that, why don't they believe? That's important to understand. What is at the heart of unbelief? Because if we don't understand, we can sometimes become discouraged about the gospel or about witnessing. You know, why are all these people rejecting Jesus? Is it me? Is there, is there something wrong with the message, maybe? Is it, is it Jesus? What is going on with all this unbelief? There are definitely opinions people give, but in Luke chapter 7, we get a glimpse into Jesus' perspective. In verses 18 through 35, it's like Luke, in the middle of all this talk about trusting Jesus, pauses and says, okay, now, let's take a look at the problem, this problem of unbelief. It's, it's not new. It was happening even in Jesus' day. So let's look at it. He gives us an illustration. Let's look at these people who didn't believe Jesus and, and listen as Jesus helps us understand why. And first, in verses 24 through 28, he takes some of the, the common excuses that people give and he, and he just takes them off the table and shows us why they don't work. And then in verses 29 and 30, he shows what makes unbelief so serious. And in Verses 31 through 35, he zones in and looks at what's really going on. This is where we find an explanation. But I think to, to catch the full impact of what Jesus is saying, we should probably step back and look at this text and ask a couple questions. Like, first of all, what kind of unbelief are we talking about exactly? I'm going to give you three questions. What is unbelief and why is it a problem, and what is at the root of it? But let's start off with this, the kind of unbelief we're looking at, because you say unbelief, and we need to be precise. So let's set the stage. Who, who are the unbelievers Jesus is addressing? Because he is addressing a specific group of people in our passage, and I want to make sure we don't get it wrong, because he is not just talking about believers who doubt. And you can see the way Luke begins by shutting down that possible misconception because in verses 18 through 23 he starts the whole section with John the Baptist sending some of his disciples to ask Jesus a question. You remember from last week the disciples of John reported all these things to him and John calling two of his disciples to him sent them to the Lord saying are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another which is a really big question for John to ask. It's not a minor question. It's, it's huge because basically, you know, he's asking, are you the one I thought you were? Are you actually the Messiah? Because this isn't quite working out the way I thought it would. And Jesus responds so gently to John, which is important and different than maybe we would. I mean, he doesn't throw up his hands or get all surprised or say, like, you remember the angel I sent your father? No, he just encourages John, uh, look again at the Bible and, and look again at me and what I'm doing. And so when Jesus talks about unbelief here in the verses that we're going to be looking at now, he's not talking about people like John, people who, who trust God but are struggling to understand how God's word is going to work out and who come to him and ask for help. Jesus gets that. And we get that as a church. And so when we talk about believing and not believing and unbelief, I don't want you to think that we think 
But leaving means that there are never going to be times in your life where you wonder or struggle. Because John is a real believer here and one of the greatest followers of Jesus who ever lived. And so if he's asking questions, clearly we know that even real faith is sometimes going to struggle with doubt. And so that's not what we mean here by unbelief. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about a flat-out refusal to submit to the gospel instead. These are the kinds of people Jesus is addressing, people who hear the gospel, know the gospel, and reject the gospel. And one way Jesus makes that clear is by turning to the crowd after John's disciples leave and talking about the privilege that they experienced in hearing John preach. This is like a setup. Jesus is going to show just how shocking unbelief is by first walking through a little of the history there of what happened with Jesus and John and their ministry in verse 24. He says, what then did you go out into the wilderness to see? And, and you could be specific. You, like you in this crowd right now, went out there. Or it could be a way of speaking as well. You, Israel, like yous, if you're from Philadelphia. You guys. But really, either way, specific or general, he knows, they know, that it was only a short time ago, months, uh, maybe a year, where almost everyone in Israel was going out into the wilderness to hear John preach. And he wants to emphasize the fact that they knew why they were going out there. And to demonstrate that, he asks a couple rhetorical questions. He says, first, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? And so obviously a trip into the wilderness isn't going to be an easy trip. You had to make some effort to get there. And I think Jesus wants them to think about the implication of what they were doing because it wasn't to see a reed shaken by the wind. That's for sure. Which I know maybe seems like a funny thing to say at first, and that's kind of the point, because you wouldn't make a trip to see a reed. And it, it could be that Jesus is talking real literally here about the reeds that grew up by the Jordan River. And even if we haven't been there, we can picture, I think, a river with these big reeds on the banks. Or it could be that he's quoting Isaiah, actually, because Isaiah is the prophet that Luke has Jesus quoting the most. And Isaiah often talks about reeds. And when he does, it's a word picture to describe someone who is unreliable, who you can't count on. But either way, if it's literal or more of a word picture, Jesus is expecting a negative response, a no, because he knows, they know, that people didn't go into the wilderness just for the sight so they could see like the reeds being shaken by the wind. And they certainly didn't go out because they thought John was someone that couldn't be trusted either. And so if that's not it, then what did you go out to see? It's a long way. It's not an easy trip. And so he asked the question again in verse 25. You know, when you're trying to get somebody to admit something, sometimes you like keep pressing the point home. And Jesus here is pressing his point home by asking the same question three times. What did you go out to see? What did you go out to see? What did you go out to see? A reed? No. Then maybe a man dressed in soft clothing. No, no, obviously not. And soft clothing means expensive clothing. And again, it's kind of funny that Jesus asked that about John because you remember John's clothing was uh, basically the opposite. I haven't worn camel's hair in a while, but I'm assuming it's not so soft. And so you saw John and you would remember what he was wearing for sure, but it wasn't because it was so, so nice. And so if they were looking for someone who was rich and important in the world's eyes, like a celebrity or something, they, they wouldn't have gone out to see John. Jesus says at the end of verse 25, where they would have gone instead. And they know it. Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. And this is a little ironic here because he's probably talking about the person who threw John in prison when he says that. He's talking about Herod because that was the closest king's court. And that's who wore Soft clothing, Herod, not John. And so they didn't go out into the wilderness for the location or just to hear a speech or to see a powerful political leader or for a fashion show. That's not why all these people from all these different levels of society from all over Israel went out into the middle of nowhere. They went out because they knew John was speaking for God. And Jesus asked the question one more time in verse 26. What then did you go out to see? Now he's like, you know what, let's just get to the, to the answer. You went out to see a prophet. 
I know that, and you know that. And this isn't really a question. If it's a, it's a question, it's expect, expecting a yes answer. Because people absolutely knew why they were going into the wilderness. They were going because they knew John was a prophet. And there were points where some of them even thought John might be the Messiah himself. And so they knew something special was going on with John. And Jesus explains how special. Yes, I tell you. And this is the middle of verse 26. Like, yeah, you're, you're right. You got it. Yes, I tell you. He is a prophet. But even more than that, he's even more than that. He's more than a prophet. And what does Jesus mean? Because how does it, how does it get more than a prophet? It's really just a way of Jesus saying John wasn't just any prophet. He was the end time prophet who was foretold in the scriptures. And Jesus quotes a scripture from the Old Testament to illustrate that, verse 27. This is he of whom it's written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. And he's quoting or paraphrasing two Old Testament passages there. And one is from Malachi and the other is from Exodus. But without going too deep, he's just emphasizing the fact that God wasn't hiding what he was doing through Jesus. I mean, God didn't just send Jesus into the world. He sent someone before Jesus to get people ready for Jesus and what he was going to do through Jesus. And we're going to look at these verses again a little more next week. And so I'm not going to dive in too much right now. But basically, Jesus is like, think about that and, and, and be honest because you know this happened. And, and not very long ago, you saw everyone going out there into the wilderness. Why? Because they knew, or at least they had an idea of what God was doing. That's the only reason anyone would have gone out there. It's because they knew at the very least that John was a prophet. And Jesus is like, you know what? I'm telling you, he was more than a prophet. He was like the super prophet. Verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John which is a big thing to say about someone, right? It's like, bring me all the people who were ever born of women, which is everyone, just in case in America we're confused about that. That's everyone who has ever lived so far. And who is the greatest? It's John. Why? It's because John is the last prophet before the Messiah, and so he has the most important job out of all the Old Testament prophets because he was the one who got to point people to the Messiah, which is what the Bible and God's plan is all about. And who did he point people to? That's the thing. He pointed people to Jesus, which if you're thinking and you're honest now, makes it obvious how important is Jesus, right? How important is what God is doing through Jesus? It's kind of hard to miss. It's so important that you could look at everyone and everything that came before Jesus and say, John is the greatest of all that. Abraham, Isaiah, Malachi, Moses, John is the greatest before Jesus. And yet after Jesus, because Jesus is so vital to everything God is doing, because of the way Jesus' work has fundamentally changed the course of history, after Jesus, end of verse 28, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. Because John had the promise and they had the fulfillment which isn't really hard arithmetic, you know? I mean, God was making a pretty obvious statement out there in the wilderness about Jesus by sending this man everyone recognized as a prophet whose whole ministry was to point people to Jesus and to say, this is the one we've been waiting for. And we know that statement was getting across back then because it wasn't just John out there in the wilderness talking to himself. You look at what happened, and his ministry had an effect. Verse 29. And verse 29 is, also, is almost like a parenthesis or an aside. And you can see in your Bible that it helps you by putting a parenthesis there because it's a, a side comment from Luke. It's not something Jesus said. It's like Luke is putting an exclamation point on what Jesus is saying. And so he writes, when all the people heard this, and what did they hear? They heard this. But what is this? 
Because at first you think he's talking about what Jesus just said, and it could be, I guess, that's possible, but I don't think so, because next he says, when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. And so this, when they heard this, this is John's message, basically. It's like Luke is bold printing here. You know, you look back at what happened as John was preaching out there, and it obviously wasn't really confusing for people what it meant, because the fact is they went out to the wilderness, which meant they were going out to hear a prophet, and when they heard what that prophet said, they confirmed his message and declared God just, like, God, you're right, by getting baptized. And it was even irreligious people, too, the people you wouldn't expect to understand, like tax collectors. They knew and recognized what God was doing through John. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors, too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. And Jesus here is like, that's history. That's history. It was only the religious leadership at that point, really, who weren't willing to get baptized. And so when we look at the people rejecting Jesus here, like we're about to, and when we talk about unbelief, I'm wanting you to see exactly the kind of people Jesus is addressing. Because, you know, it's not people who didn't have a lot of revelation that he's talking to. The context here, he's not talking about believers who doubt, and he's not talking about people who didn't have a lot of revelation, which is who I think we often think about when we talk about unbelief, people who haven't heard much about Jesus. But it's like we're going to start at the opposite end of the spectrum, and we're going to think about people who have actually received a lot of revelation instead, which I think is better. I think it's more helpful that that Luke does it this way because it helps us get at the core reason. That's what I like about this passage because when we talk about unbelief and we start with people who haven't heard much or haven't received much revelation, it's easy to get confused and kind of distracted and to feel as if that were the main reason they weren't believing, the lack of revelation. And sometimes uh, people will say, you know, what about people who haven't heard the gospel? And sometimes deep down the assumption or at least question is, like, it, if people could just hear, then they would automatically believe. Like, the, the main problem with unbelief is primarily a lack of revelation. And what we're going to see is that the problem of unbelief actually goes deeper than that. And we're going to see that by looking at people who did receive a lot of revelation and asking, why did they reject what God said about Jesus? Because the fact is, they did, for the most part. Those are the kinds of people Jesus is addressing. Verse 31, he says, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? And this is kind of interesting, because initially with John, it seemed like a good start. Because there were people who accepted what John had to say, and they got excited and baptized. And that was Jesus' whole point. You went out to listen to John because you knew he was a, a prophet. And it may be that he's talking about some in the crowd. You, that, you, you went out. Why did you go out? And for a while, they were even excited about Jesus, which is why they're there. There's a, there's a crowd here. And you, you see how excited they were in the Gospel of John especially. But there is a difference between being excited about Jesus and submitting in faith to Jesus. And I don't know, but maybe Jesus is even looking ahead here as he speaks because he knows what's coming. And what's coming, as we keep going in Luke, is that as soon as Jesus started doing things differently than they think he should many of these same people end up turning on Jesus and following the Pharisees and the lawyers instead of John. I mean, obviously not all these people ended up becoming Christians or followers of Christ. And that's why Jesus talks about this generation, verse 31. It's those people then who rejected him. And I, I kind of want you to feel that for a minute, almost as a warning as we think about unbelief. That these people, with all this information, rejected Jesus because that's not just them, that's man. That's kind of the point. There is something so wrong in the heart of man that even if he has all the information that he could possibly desire, even if he is staring Jesus in the face, he's still able to flat out refuse to submit to him. Let me try to be clear here because this is sort of hard medicine. <laughs> But ultimately, unbelief is not merely a matter of not having enough revelation. 
the way a lot of people think. Obviously, because we look back and see that even when men had all kinds of proof, they were still able to reject what God was saying. There is something so desperately wrong in the heart of man that he can prefer his own ignorance to what God reveals. And here we see it illustrated in the Pharisees and lawyers out there in the wilderness with John, but in the end, others obviously followed along, and you know they're not like so unusual. That's what I want you to hear. They're not a, a worse kind of sinner than anyone else at all. And I know this is a little hard to take, but listen to the way Romans 1 defines unbelief. Romans, Romans 1, verse 18. Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And it's that phrase, suppress the truth. What does that mean, to suppress it means to push down the truth, and that describes us apart from God's grace. We are not neutral towards the truth. We're opposed to it. There is a stubborn opposition to the gospel in the heart of man that refuses, apart from a work of the Holy Spirit, to believe the gospel and submit to Jesus. That's the kind of unbelief we're talking about. Now, why is that kind of unbelief such a serious problem? First, what is unbelief? It's not just doubt that we're talking about or just lacking information. It's a stubborn opposition to what God is doing through Jesus. That's unbelief. And second, why is that such a problem? Which I know uh, maybe seems kind of obvious to us as we're sitting here at church, but it is not really so obvious to a lot of people. Why does God care about unbelief? If you look at what's happening in Luke chapter 7, verses 29 and 30, I think we get a hint why refusing to, to respond to John's message and Jesus's is such a big deal. It's because refusing to believe the word of God is refusing to believe God. If you look at the way Luke describes the two responses to John, first, like we said, there were some who were baptized, and yet notice... What did they declare about God by doing that? Luke says they declared God just, which means they said God's right. They weren't just getting baptized. They were making a statement about God. And yet, on the other hand, Luke says there were others who refused to submit to John's baptism. And this is important because look at exactly what that meant in verse 30. He says, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves not having been baptized by him. In other words, their response to John's message and then ultimately Jesus was a serious issue because it represented their response to God himself, which is ultimately true for all of us. Our response to the gospel ultimately re represents our response to God himself. That's a point that Paul makes in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. They're turning to a different gospel. And what did that mean? They were deserting God. I love how Paul talks about his ministry as a gospel preacher in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you, if you look there, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, he, he says that God in trusted to him the message of reconciliation. This is what we have in the, the gospel, God's message of peace. And then Paul says, therefore, verse 20, that makes us ambassadors for Christ. And so in other words, we aren't representing ourselves when we share the gospel. We are representing God. And as a result, when the gospel message is preached, Paul says, it's really, listen to this, God making his appeal through us. And so if the gospel were me sharing my message, who cares how you respond? But it's not. It's a message from God that we hear from the mouths of men, which means ultimately that when we refuse to submit to the gospel, when it's accurately proclaimed, we are refusing to submit to God. Like these Pharisees, these lawyers, and this entire generation that Jesus is talking about back in Luke 7. 
And you know, maybe we can even use them as sort of an illustration now, because I think it's tempting to downplay unbelief. And we can, we can sort of put all kinds of nice words on it to make it look better than it is to the point where if I go most places and I talk about the ugly sin of unbelief in the gospel, most people will not have any idea what I'm talking about. The ugliness of unbelief. If I say, I want to tell you about a really serious sin, a really serious sin, not believing the gospel, there are many people who would be like, is that a sin? People don't think of not believing as ugly, unless I'm talking about not believing in myself, right? They're like, oh yeah, that is a problem. But if I talk about the ugly sin of not believing in Jesus, that sounds strange because they don't even think of unbelief as a sin, much less an ugly one. But God's perspective is different. And maybe if you look at what unbelief was causing these Pharisees and lawyers to do as an illustration, you can kind of get a sense as to why God hates it so much. Because it's really, you'll see, the mother of all sin. Charles Spurgeon, in his day, he talked uh, to people who didn't think unbelief was a sin. And he was so shocked. He said, oh, sirs. Believe me, could you roll all sins into one mass? Could you take murder and blasphemy and lust, adultery and fornication and everything that is vile and unite them all into one vast globe of black corruption? They would not equal even then the sin of unbelief. It's too bad Spurgeon's not your preacher. He's a good preacher with, wow. This is the, the mar monarch sin, the quintessence essence of guilt, the mixture of the venom of all crimes, the dregs of the wine of Gomorrah. It is the A1 sin, the masterpiece of Satan, the chief work of the devil. And that's strong stuff. But first of all, just think about the pride behind unbelief. People hate pride, uh, usually in others. And I'm sure the Pharisees did, these people who are rejecting Jesus here. You can imagine how angry a Pharisee would get if someone unimportant walked into the synagogue and took their seat of honor. They would be like, uh, excuse me, how dare you do that? And yet what does unbelief cause them to do? It causes them to act in the most absolutely arrogant way possible toward God because here they look at God's messengers, one of them being the single greatest prophet who ever lived pre-Jesus and the other being God's own son who came straight down from heaven itself and shake their heads and say, now you know what, we hear you, but we don't think what you're saying is quite good enough. We don't think God's right. As Peter puts it in 1 Peter 2, it's, it's like God gives them a stone to use as the cornerstone for the temple he's building. And they say to God, oh, oh sorry, but we don't want to use this one. Think about that kind of disrespect. Because usually people get pretty angry pretty quickly if someone treats them with the little least amount of disrespect. We know that's not right. If someone uh, jumps in front of you in line without permission. You know how that can make you feel like, hey, because the person's not showing you respect. And yet check out the kind of disrespect that unbelief causes these religious leaders to show God if you want to see what makes unbelief so ugly. Because here they are spending all their time studying their Bible, and yet when God comes and reveals his plans and his purposes, they treat it as if it were just a suggestion or an option or an opinion. And so John comes and says, you need to be baptized to demonstrate your repentance, to prepare yourself for the Messiah. And they're like, well, no, actually, I don't think so. And I mean, imagine doing that to a human king. You, you, you probably wouldn't even survive the night. And yet these Pharisees showed more respect to another's opinions than they did to the word of God. And it wasn't just a matter of respect either because unbelief led to flat out disobedience. They rejected God's purpose for their lives. Obviously, most of us as fathers, we want our children to obey us. We know parents deserve obedience. 
If you're in the army, I, I guarantee you the officers expect you to do what they say. This is normal. You obey those who are above you, and that's doubly true if the commands they give are reasonable and good. We know that as humans, and yet God comes here in his grace through John and then Jesus and pleads with people not to do anything difficult, but to turn from the sins that are killing them and get ready for the salvation he's going to bring. And yet even though they say God is their king, they refuse to do what God says which is really crazy, especially when you think about all God had done for them. Usually when we've done something for someone, especially if it involves sacrifice, we expect a little more concern for what we say. It's kind of like, hey, man, do you remember what I did for you? And yet God spent thousands of years preparing these people for the Messiah, and yet when the Messiah came in a way that was better and more amazing than they expected, God actually became man and stood right in front of them. Their unbelief caused them to respond to all that kindness and all that privilege and all that blessing with absolute, 100% pure, raging hate. Like, let's take this man and nail him to a cross and crucify him. And again, it's not just them. Because we all carry the nails from Jesus' cross in our pockets. There is this principle that exists in man's heart called unbelief, which says, no, I will not submit to God. And it is just illustrated in the Pharisees and lawyers here. But they most definitely are not a special case apart from the grace of God. That is what is in our hearts as well. And it is a very ugly sin. It doesn't stay by itself. It's pride, it's disrespect, it's disobedience, it's ingratitude, and it ends up causing man to basically spit in God's face. And so we might minimize it. We do minimize it. But if someone did to us what men do to God as a result of unbelief, there's no way we would tolerate it. Unbelief, rejecting revelation, is serious sin. Third, what's at the heart of it? What was the reason these men rejected Jesus and John? And what can we learn about why people don't believe? In verses 31 and following, Jesus gives an illustration. He says, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? And again, it's a little bit of a switch, because in verse 30, he was talking about the Pharisees and the lawyers, Luke, and now Jesus talks about the people of this generation. But it's just that a year later, after all the excitement, Now John's in prison, and as people are getting to know Jesus, they're becoming less and less comfortable with him, and as a result, more and more suspicious, even of John, actually. And so as Jesus looks at the crowd, he knows where this is headed. He knows their heart, and so he steps back, and it's kind of like he's saying, let me try to find an illustration that will help you understand what's really going on. He says, you're like children, verse 32. They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. And so in Jesus' day, uh, they had a place where people would go to buy and sell their goods, obviously, a marketplace outside with all these shops and uh, places where you could buy clothes and food and different kinds of things. It, I guess, would have been a little like a farmer's market maybe now. And so families are going to come, adults and children, and maybe especially on days when the market was not quite as busy, that children are going to come and play. And when children gather to play, a lot of times what they like to do is uh, come up with their own games. They didn't have video games back then. And one of the things that children like to play uh, most is uh, grown-up, or uh, I think in our family it's called teacher-teacher, or doctor-doctor, or daddy-daddy, uh, or mommy-mommy. I, I have memories walking into the room of most of my children and finding them with a book in their hand, like waving their arms and saying all kinds of, of nonsense, playing preacher. And uh, these children, uh, Jesus is describing here, had a game like that, that they used to play with one another. They would play wedding. And so there would be uh, someone who would be the bride, and someone who would be the groom, and someone who would be the musician. And when someone started playing their little flute, everyone was supposed to dance. But in this illustration, Jesus is saying these children refused. And it's like one group of children here are complaining to the other group of children. And they're saying, when we played the flute for you, you wouldn't join. We were happy and having fun, and you were over there with your arms folded, acting all miserable. And so the children said, we sang a dirge for you. 
Meaning because you were sad, we said, okay, instead of playing a happy game like a wedding, we'll play a sad one. Funeral, which probably doesn't sound quite as fun to us, but obviously children can make anything fun. And so I'm sure someone had to pretend to be the dead person and another person had to be the person who carried the dead person and, and someone else had to be the people who cried. And then of course, again, there were musicians and the children say that when we played the music for the funeral and tried to get you to join our game, you refused that game too, you wouldn't weep. And so no matter what one group of children did to please the others and to get them to join, they just wouldn't. And as Jesus looks at these people who are refusing to submit to the gospel as it's being presented to them, he says, the best illustration I can come up with to describe what's at the heart of that unbelief are these spoiled children who won't be pleased no matter what anyone does. And in case that illustration is not clear enough, Jesus applies it in verses 33 and 34. He says, For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, He has a demon. And I don't know if this is changing opinions or primarily the religious leadership or now people are listening to the religious leadership about John, but the point is you might say that John has come playing the funeral game, and he did, right? John's message was kind of intense because it was all about sin and judgment. And so when you went to hear John preach, you went away convicted. I mean, John the Baptist asked you to pass the salt. You're like, please forgive me. He was so serious. And you were like scared as he was talking about axes cutting trees and fire and judgment. And you saw he was different. He came, Jesus says, eating no bread and drinking no wine, which were just normal everyday ways of living life. But John didn't do what everyone else did. While they were eating bread, he was eating locusts. While they were having parties and drinking wine, he was out there in the wilderness crying, repent, repent, repent. And how did they respond after the excitement died down? They responded by listening to the religious leadership who was saying, ah, John must have a demon. And so, all right, Jesus says, if that's how you responded to John, let's look at how you responded to the Son of Man. Because verse 34, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And so that's why we have life groups. <laughs> the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And it's like Jesus' style of ministry was the opposite of John's. While John was out there in the middle of nowhere, Jesus was right there in the middle of it all. He was constantly surrounded by people, deeply involved in their lives. He went to weddings. He went to funerals. He spent times in people's homes. He ate with them. If you describe John's ministry like the funeral game, you would describe Jesus's ministry like the wedding. And how did they respond to that? Verse 34, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And here's, here's maybe where our hearts start to break a little because we're starting to see what is at the root of unbelief. It is a stubborn, I want to do what I want to do attitude. I want to be in charge. Even with Jesus, you see, they had an idea of what the Messiah should be, and as long as he was fitting their plan, they were excited. But once they realized his agenda was different and would require submission, they started turning on him. And so I know people like to make all kinds of excuses as to why they reject the gospel. But at the end of the day, as we look at these people in Jesus's day, what was really at the root of their rejecting him? And I know they lived a couple thousand years ago and had their own things going on, but they're an illustration, and you need to take the illustration seriously because it wasn't just that they needed more proof because there's really nothing God could have done to satisfy them. First, he sent the single greatest prophet who ever lived, and they said he had a demon, and then he sent his own son, and they said he was a pagan. So, I mean, no matter what messenger God sent, that messenger would not have been acceptable to him. As someone said, John came sober, severe, stark, preaching judgment, repentance, weeping in view of God's wrath, separate from sinners in his style, and you call him demonic. And so here comes Jesus, tender, merciful, gracious, compassionate, mingling with everybody, touching the lives of sinners with tenderness and forgiveness, talking about salvation, talking about joy, talking about blessing, talking about kingdom, the kingdom, and you call him a pagan. 
John fasted and you rejected him. Jesus called for a feast and you rejected him. John said the kingdom was a fire and you rejected him. Jesus said the kingdom was a festival and you rejected him. John preached judgment and you rejected him. Jesus preached joy and you rejected him. And that's because at its core, this kind of unbelief is a pretty nasty thing. It is not neutral. And so if you are here and you've heard the gospel and you understand the gospel and you are still refusing to submit to the gospel, I think it is important that you think about that because there may be things that you are telling yourself. Like, if only, if only God, if only. But maybe the problem is deeper than you think it is. Maybe it's not so much an intellectual problem as it is a moral one. Unbelief is really good at coming up with excuses for itself. And I'm sure it did here in Luke's day. I'm sure they wouldn't have said, you know, I, we are being like children. And I, we do just want to do what we want to do. No, they had to come up with a way to reject the truth and still look good. And so they said, no, 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 we're really religious. It's that John has a demon and Jesus is a pagan. Those are actual objections, but Jesus reveals the heart and that those excuses were just for show because they were attacking both John and Jesus for opposite reasons. And so it wasn't actually about the messenger, it was about the message. And I think at the end of the day, it always is. It always is. Which probably for those of us who are Christians and, and who really have a heart to see people saved, Maybe sounds a little bit discouraging, honestly, as we think about unbelief. Because we know these people here in Luke are not the worst of us. They're like the best of us. And yet we see that we're so messed up that God can send all these prophets, getting us ready for the salvation he's going to bring, and then send this great prophet to point at the salvation he's going to bring and say this is it, and then send his very own son into the world with all kinds of proof that he is the salvation that he promised. And yet even though we've spent all these years studying the book with information about him, and even though we can say we want to see him when he comes and he's standing right in front of us, all of that is not enough to make us willing to submit to him. And that's not just them, that's us. This is the world in which we live. And these are the kinds of people we've been called to take the gospel to. The problem goes way deeper than people simply needing some more information. They need a supernatural transformation, which is the hope for us as individuals and as a church, because God can do that. He did that in us. And this is where I start to get excited in the face of all the unbelief we see around us. Because, you know, when it comes to preaching and witnessing, if the only hope was that we could somehow say things good enough that people would have to believe, or we could just give them enough signs that they would be forced to believe. If the only hope we had as we went out there and proclaimed Christ was in our own abilities, then there would be no hope, none. Because the problem of unbelief goes way beyond that. The unbeliever is not neutral toward the gospel. He is by nature hostile to it, which means if he's gonna be saved, he needs a new nature and God is in the business of doing just that. That's why we preach. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. As Jesus says, yet wisdom is justified by her children, verse 35. And this could be a, a positive statement or a negative one. So the word yet could be and, or it could be yet, a contrast. And I, I think it's a contrast because of where Luke goes in the next few stories. He starts to describe people who did respond positively. And so I think this is a little bit of hope here at the end. Because obviously there wasn't just one response to Jesus and John of unbelief, because even while most people were making up these excuses not to listen to God's way of salvation, there were others who were embracing Christ and declaring God's way of salvation right back in Jesus' day and in ours as well. And as we take the gospel out, there are going to be many people, of course, who hear it and think it's foolishness. And we shouldn't be surprised by that, and we shouldn't be thrown by that. But instead, like John, like Jesus, we need to continue to share the truth about Jesus and cry out to God that he will use the foolishness of the gospel to open blind hearts, because he does. 
Wisdom is justified by her children. The gospel of God is declared right by those who are given the new birth. He did that in the disciples who were following Jesus. He's done that in the lives of men and women for thousands of years. And he did that in us, as the Apostle Paul once explained. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And this same message, this same Jesus, that some come up with all kinds of excuses to reject, others embrace as their only hope. And that's not because they're smarter than others or more clever than others, but instead because God's been at work in their hearts, drawing them to himself. To those who are called by God, the gospel is not foolishness, it's wisdom. And as those who have been called by God, here's the point, we must continue to take this message of God's salvation into this unbelieving world and declare it right. That's our job. That's how we glorify God right now. We exist as a church to let the world know that there is only one way to be forgiven of sin, to be right with God, to experience eternal life, to escape the wrath of God, to be adopted into God's family, to be set free from your sins. And that is by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ through faith and faith alone. And if you haven't, I am pleading with you on behalf of God to turn from your sins and turn to him today and repent of your childish excuses and ask God to give you the miracle of faith. And if he has... Will you pray and think about ways to take this grand and glorious gospel out? No matter what the cost, wisdom is justified by all her children. Let us be children of God who declare God right by spreading this glorious message about Jesus. Let's pray. This is your word, God. It's not the word of just another man. Help us to respond today to what you have spoken, Lord, in a way that declares you right. We pray this in Jesus, your name. Amen.